if, if we haven't met, my name is Satham, uh, one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing, if you were here this last week, we took a little bit of a break, but this morning we're going to continue uh, our series uh, called Cave uh, Table uh, and Road, and we're going to be in uh, kind of Cave Part 2 uh, this morning as we look at kind of the, the intimacy moments, these relationships, uh, these spaces and moments that we get to have with our, with our Creator Father and how important that is uh, in uh, the world. So this last week I, I had the privilege uh, and the opportunity to, um, to be on the youth panel. Uh, so the youth have been doing this series um, and part of their series is wrestling through hard questions, which, which I absolutely love because students ask just some of the best questions. They really do. Just really, really good, fun questions. Uh, and one of the questions that they asked um, was, was this, is doubting a sin? And so I want you to think about that for a second. What, I mean, how would you respond to that? Is doubt a sin? Does it, is it is a sinful thing to, to doubt what, or to have questions in life? And so for me, as I was wrestling through that, um, here's how I would respond to that. I would say that no, I don't think that doubting is a sin, and here's why. Because if I were to go back to the creation moment, uh, and if I were to, like, to, to look at this Adam and Eve moment, this space and time, this, this peace and history, and they're created in, in the image of God. Like, that, that's true, right? We look at them, we go, they have the ability to reflect the goodness and the character of who God is. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. But then when sin enters into the world, right, there's this, this, this new thing, right? Because prior to sin, all I could do was trust my creator. And yet when sin enters into the world, now I have the option to trust myself. And that's my disposition, is to choose myself. But in between those two things is this gap, this tension space, where we have all these questions. I think it's a really natural space. So even though I'm created in the image of God, I have all of that, that conscious that's imprinted on me, but then I also have this sinful nature. And it's in the space that all these doubts and really these questions really arise. And so I don't think the doubt in and of itself is a sin, depending on where that leads us right? Because again, I can choose to trust God or I can choose to trust, uh, my, uh, trust myself, right? And there's this, in this space, there's these, all these natural questions for us, like, why is the sky blue? I, like, I don't know. Like, is, is, like, the philosophical question, is my blue, the blue that I see, the blue that you see? Like, there's all these weird questions that you begin to wrestle with, and then you go, it gets deeper, and then you go, well, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? And then you have all this, this whole span of questions in life and on all these doubts that arise of like, what do I do with this? Um, and maybe even for like now, like just like in our own personal lives right now, we think about uh, the political landscape, we think about national landscape, we think about global landscapes. So you have all of these questions, all right? And, and we have this choice at the end of every day because we don't have the answers. At the end of every moment, at the end of every doubt, I have to choose, do I trust God or do I trust myself? Right? And ultimately, what we're talking about is that we want to be a people who trust what is true. And that's why we're moving into this portion of cave time today, is to trust what God says is true about us. But before we get there, um, I'm going to pull out this really old ghetto 1970s train. I don't know what year it was made. 
this is one of, <laughs> this is one of Eden's toys, um, and I think it's actually from when I was little, um, and it was probably passed on to me by somebody else. But I learned this illustration when I was in college, and I find it very helpful for me as I, as I wrestle through kind of where we're at this morning, because this is the way that the illustration is designed, is that this component right here, this is, the, this is what we know is the engine, right? And the engine is what guides the train, right? It's what powers it, it directs it, it's, it's only from the cockpit position that I can actually see where we're going, if there's anything in front of me in the tracks, right? So this represents God's truth uh, or God's word. The center one, though, represents my faith. And so really the middle car is like, where is my faith? My faith, if it's, if it's in the correct position, is actually behind God's word. It's behind God's truth. And so just to say that, that when I link these two or hook these two things up, what I'm saying is that I'm putting my faith in what God says is true, ultimately about himself, uh, about myself and my identity and how, um, in, in light of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for me, uh, but also like it's also putting my faith in what God says is true about how he's working in the world. And then you have this final one, which is, you know, aptly labeled the caboose. I don't know where that word ever came from, but I love it. Caboose is just such a fun word to say. Um, and caboose is where the feelings are. Now, feelings are good, and we are designed with feelings, and they are good, but, but not, um, not when they are actually in the wrong position. So here's what happens oftentimes is that we, we put the caboose at the front of our life, and our feelings end up controlling and dictate and guide how I respond to any certain situation. And then what happens then is the truth, like that happens, I have to move that to the back. And so what happens when the truth is in the back is that now it can't see, it's blind. It's, it's running blind, right? It can't see where it's going. It's really just pushing. And my faith remains the same. It's in that same middle spot. But my faith is now in my feelings as opposed to what is in what God says is true, which takes me back to the garden, right? Because that's exactly that tension. Like, I have all these questions, but then the question is, who do I trust? Do I trust the Lord, and do I trust what God says is true, or do I trust myself and what I think is right in this world? And what's amazing to me is that in life, this can be in the right order and, and we can have, like, smooth sailing, and life will be just working perfectly. And we go, man, like, life is just good. Like, I'm following Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm really diving into God's Word, and there's really good things that I'm learning. And yet, in a moment, in a split second, whatever it is, like, somebody cuts me off while I'm driving. <laughs> the truth goes to the back, and the feelings come to the front, right? That's true. And that's just the reality. And it's just the thing that, like, how quickly, how quickly life can change for us in the way that feelings become the driving piece of our life. And that's actually what's going to happen in our story this morning. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter uh, 19. But before we turn there, I want you to hear this, this big idea. Um, and I think this is, this is really true. Um, what God wants to do through you, right? That's the road. I'm trying to connect these two for you, right? Cave, table, road. So life with God in community and on mission. So what God wants to do through you, what he wants your life on mission to look like and all of the great plans that he has for you actually starts right in your cave. It starts in your intimacy, in your personal relationship with your heavenly Father, your creator. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 19. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Um, but before we do, um, it's going to take a little bit because we need to summarize 
um, all of chapter 18, because 18 and 19 are explicitly linked together in this story, okay? So we have two characters in this story, and one is by the name of Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of the Lord, and whenever you see the Lord in all caps, it's a, it's a, it's a reference to his personal name, so Yahweh. So he is a, a prophet of Yahweh, but then you have this other guy whose name is Ahab. Now, Ahab uh, is a king of northern Israel, okay? Um, and if you were to read through Kings and Chronicles, you would see uh, or find that there's this pattern. However it describes kings, it says that they followed one of two patterns. Uh, one is that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or two, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, now, Ahab was, was the, the latter in that. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. But what's unique to Ahab is actually this, as it says that Ahab, more than any other king in front of him, did what was evil. It's like you take all those other kings and you add up all that stuff and you look at Ahab and you go, man, Ahab is a lot worse. He's in, 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 on his list of failures, uh, one, um, he's really a Baal worshiper, right? He worships the wrong gods, which he actually got from uh, this gal named Jezebel, who he married, which was the, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians at the time. And so they worshiped all these false gods. And so what does Ahab do? He starts getting entrenched and ingrained in worshiping false gods and worshiping um, the Baals, B-A-A-L-S, right, the Baals. And so what God does in this moment is that he decides, like, okay, how do I get these people's attention? I'm going to bring a drought. And so we actually are in kind of year three in our text, year three of a drought, right? And by the way, we're already in a desert climate, so water is incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, important. And so what God does, though, is that he calls Elijah in this moment, year three, to confront Ahab. Now is the time for you to talk to Ahab, okay? So what does he do as they, they decide, um, Ahab and, and um, Elijah, they decide to meet. And so what Ahab does is that he calls um, all of the people of northern Israel, all of the people to this, to this mountain, Mount Carmel, okay? And among those people are his prophets of Baal, 450 prophets. And then you have one Elijah, <laughs> okay? So 450 prophets of Baal, all of the people of northern Israel, and Elijah, prophet of Yahweh, okay? So that's a little bit of the scenario. And what they, what they decide to do is, is what I would call maybe like a battle of the gods, okay? Just like we're going to play a little game and we're going to see whose god is better. It's either going to be your god or our god, but here's how we're going to do it. Here's the boundaries. Here's how this game works is that we're each going to build an altar, but you can't put any fire to it right? What we're going to do is we're just going to pray and chant, and we're going to see whose God uh, answers by sending fire from heaven, right? And you go, this is an odd but strangely fun game. Like, I wish I could have seen this. Like, like, this is a neat thing. And yet, though, we go, this is also very, very, very sad. It's a very, very sad moment because, because we see so many people uh, who are devoting their lives to worship of this false deity, this false, this false God. And so Elijah, in this moment, what does he do? Is he allows the other team to go first. He says, "Why don't you guys? You guys can have the first at bat." Um, and uh, and I think that he probably just wanted to see him fail, honestly. Um, and so he lets them go. And so what do they do? You get all 450 prophets of Baal, and they begin to pray and chant uh, around. Um, 
around their sacrifice. Take this out. Check, take a look at this. This is actually, I think this will be a map. So what you'll see is up there is a circle um, along uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea, that Great Sea area, which is just kind of parallel with the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Mount Carmel is, right? The, kind of the, almost the, the, the most northern, one of the most northern pieces uh, of of Israel, but take a look at this next this next slide because this is where um, this is what they pray. The people pray. Um, these 450 prophets pray. O Baal, answer us. Now remember that it's 450 people praying. Answer us. Answer us. Answer us. And it's sad because they do it from morning until lunch with no answer, no voice, nothing. In fact, then it goes on into midday, and they resort to cutting themselves and doing all these things that they think that they can do to invoke the presence of Baal. And they keep going and keep going and keep going, and yet there's no response. There's no response. And this is where Elijah enters back into the story, and guys, Elijah is not a good example for us in this, because he actually begins to mock these people. Like, these are the people that you want to save, and yet he begins to mock them. He says, hey, why don't you just try crying louder? Talk, talk louder, cry louder, because maybe he's musing. Uh, maybe he is um, off uh, relieving himself, like he's in a potty break. Uh, maybe he's actually on a really long journey and he can't hear you, or maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's just like dead tired from all these other stuff and you need to wake him up. You need to go in and shake him, jump on the bed, whatever you need to do, wake him up to get him to come and answer your prayers. It's not a good example, by the way. Right? It's not a good thing. And yet... Then it's Elijah's turn, and so what does Elijah do? He builds an altar. Uh, he has, in, in light of everything, he has them go get four jars of water. And he says, I want you to bring four jars of water, bring them over, and then they dump them on top of the sacrifice. Now, if there's anything that you know about wanting to start a fire, the last thing you want is water on your sacrifice. And so he says, go get four jars, dump it on, then do it again, and then do it again. Three times, right? So 12, right? 12 jars of water. Like, and by the way, we're in a drought. Water is the most valuable resource that you could possibly have. And he's like, just, it's like he's mocking them, just putting it on, putting it on, putting it on. And then what does he do, though? It's his prayer is very genuine. Look at this prayer. He says this. He says, answer me. And you see the contrast, right? Before it was us, because it was 450 people. Here he says, answer me. Little old, simple Elijah. Answer me, O Lord answer me, that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And so what then miraculously happens, right, is that God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the entire sacrifice. And in this moment, this is their response. All these people, we're, talking not, we're not talking about the prophets, we're talking about the people of Israel who are there witnessing, and they say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord is God. So by the way, when we, when we pray these things, like when we think about life today, we go, man, like, like if, if I have a prayer, this is what I hope my prayer, this is what I hope our prayer is. Like whatever God is doing in, in this world and whatever this story continues to unfold, gosh, what we go is like, God, whatever you're going to do, we hope that at the end of the day, what it's doing is it's turning parts back. We want people to know that you are Yahweh, that you are the Lord, and that people would, would fall in line and worship you. And this is where we go, man, like everything in this story is like, is going perfectly. Like this, this train is in perfect working order, right? Like you have God's truth at the beginning. My faith is in who he is and what he says is true. And in the far back, are my feelings. 
And then at the, and then the next piece, though, we go, like, but here's the reality. Like, it doesn't stop there. Like, there's this three-year drought, and then all of a sudden, like, God throws, like, the ice cream onto the brownie, you know? And you're like, oh, my gosh, this is what happens. And he ends the drought. The drought is over, and he sends rain. And Elijah, I think in this moment, is probably, like, just relieved. He's like, I've been working for so hard. I am utterly spent. I am so exhausted. I've been so overwhelmed. I'm so thankful that this is finally finally over. I think that's probably what's going on in in light of this, right? The train is in perfect working uh, order, but then here's what happens is that Ahab goes home and tells his wife Jezebel all that Elijah has done, which includes, by the way, the slaughter of all 450 prophets of Baal. He kills them all because they are false, false false worshipers. And so he has them put to the death, put to the sword. And so then Ahab goes home and says, hey, guess what? The people have turned against us and all of our prophets are dead. And then Jezebel sends this word, sends a messenger to Elijah. Check this, um, check this out, verse 2. It says, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. <laughs> Now, you would think in that moment that Elijah would be like, my God sends fire from heaven. What can you do? Like, I'm on cloud nine. This is how awesome my God is. I'm not scared of you. And yet, in verse three, here's what it says. It says, and then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life. <laughs> he, he was afraid. Um, he, he got up, and he ran for, uh, for his life, right? It's like this crazy moment, like everything was in perfect order, and then in a moment, in this, this, this little tiny flip, this snap of a moment, like his feelings went whoop, and God's word went straight to the back. What God says is true, it became like a, an afterburner, like the backburner, like the afterthought, like I don't really care what God says anymore, I am frightened, I am scared, and so I am going to rise up and I am going to flee for my life. And, and this is where I would just, can we pause? in this and just say, how often does this happen in our lives? How often does this happen for you? And everything in life seems to be going good, and yet in this split moment, our feelings take over, and our caboose becomes like the front of our engine. It just goes to show how sinful our hearts really are. This is the depravity. Like, we all have questions, and we all have doubts. That's not a sin. But when I choose to trust in myself and my feelings over God's word, that puts me in a dangerous place. And we begin to run blind. And so here's what I would say about Elijah, and I think that this makes a direct parallel to today, is that in a time of personal and national crisis, he ran. In a time when life was hard for him personally, and in a life that was hard for his nation, and we might add for the, for the globe, for the world, he ran. That's what he did. Like, he just gets up, and he, and he flees, and he runs, which goes to show that the trip, right, is not divinely inspired. Like, it's not like God said, hey, why don't you just go and get, find someplace safe? 
Like, this is, this is purely Elijah. He's getting up and doing this of his own volition, and he runs away. Check out this map. So, here's what, here's what's, what you're going to see is that Mount Carmel is up there on the top, right? And he's going to flee all the way down to this other little circle on the bottom left, uh, which is this town called Beersheba. Now, that circle on the right is actually Jerusalem. We might have actually expected that he stop in Jerusalem. Like, like, life is chaos. Life is hard. Life is difficult. What should I do? I should go pray at the temple. That's not what he does. He flees. He goes right past it to this town called Beersheba. So he basically goes from as far north as possible to as far south as possible. He runs away. And then what he does is he actually, he then drops off his servant in Beersheba because my guess is, is that Elijah's just a total wreck and he's like, man, like I've got a lot of junk going on between me and my Lord and I don't want this guy to see that, so I'm going to leave you here. And then it says that he goes another day's journey down somewhere into this wilderness box. He goes down there somewhere. So he's traveled probably a total of seven days about as far north to about as far south as he can possibly get, Right? And he gets to this, this moment in verse 4b, and he says this. He says, and he asked, or he's talking to God, he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Have you ever found yourself in that type of a moment? As you think through, as you think through the train, just right now, like, is, is God's word and is what he says true, is that what's guiding your life? Or is it your feelings? And if it's your feelings, let me ask you this, what feeling is it? Is, I mean, when you look at Elijah, he says, gosh, like, I'm no better than my father. Maybe it's guilt. He goes, like, I, like I, I know that I did the wrong thing, and I ran away, and blah, 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 and he gets to this point. He goes, I'm just, I'm guilty. I'm shameful. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's just a sense of overwhelm, you know? Maybe it's my, my total exhaustion. Uh, maybe it's that I just have these fears that are guiding and ruling my life. And so I'd ask you, which one is it for you? And maybe it's not. Maybe we go, it's the other way around. We go, praise Jesus. That's awesome. But I know that for me, this oftentimes happens. And it's so quick and so easy that in a moment that that can happen, in a moment, in a moment, in a moment, we can go from everything right to everything wrong in that space. And so if that's true, if this is you in this moment this morning, whatever that is, here's what I want you to hear. And here's what I want you to know is that this is where God enters into the story and he redirects Elijah. Because by the way, in verse 3, right, like there was no mention of the word of the Lord. In fact, it's not until verse 9 that the word of the Lord comes back in. So he's, he's totally neglected that, and yet God has compassion on Elijah, and he wants to, to redirect him and, and to create, really out of this running away, he's going to create a divinely inspired trip for Elijah to, to get into this right, intimate relationship with himself. Okay? That's what he's going to do. So instead of death, what does he do? He gives him food to sustain him for this really long journey. And so here's what I would say, and again, in this direct parallel for us, is that in a time of national crisis and in a time of personal crisis, what does he do? He actually directs Elijah to a cave. He sends him to a spot where he can talk to his father. 
And you see the connection, right? Cave, table, road. He's going to send him to a cave. So where does he send him? He sends him actually to uh, Mount Horeb. So you take a look at this map, that little box at the top, right? That's kind of the wilderness area. And all the way down at the bottom, right, in between where that water kind of forks out, that's probably one of the most likely places for Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the same name for Mount, or it's a different name for the same mountain, Mount Sinai. That's where God gave... Moses and his people, his commandments. And so he's just fled seven days from the north part of Israel to the south. And God's like, cool, you're on a journey. I'm going I'm to I'm give you a journey. And he gives him food and some sleep. And he sends him 40 days on this journey, this trek through rugged, rugged, rugged space, all the way down to Mount Sinai, 250 miles, 40 days, which is a reminder of the Exodus wandering. The whole time, you got to be thinking and putting yourself into the shoes of his ancestors who were there just like hundreds of years ago, right? And he's heading down, and here's where we get verse 9 in Mount Horeb. Here's what it says. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, right? This is verse 9. So this is the first time God's word enters back into the story since before verse 3. All of that was him fleeing, and all of a sudden now God is going to rewrite this train, put truth back at the front, and his word comes to Elijah and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, there's two ways to read this, isn't there? There's two ways to read this. One is the ridiculous, um, like, like, mean God. Like, what are you doing here? What, like, 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 Elijah, what are you thinking? Like, like, why, why, why are you here? We could read it that way. That's not, I don't think, the way it's intended. Which, by the way, though, I think it's, a, it's, it's important for us to know. Like, like, is that how you picture God talking to you in your personal walk? Like, come on, like, Seth, what, what are you thinking? Like, why are you, why did you make that decision? Why did you do that again? Like, why do you keep doing that over and over? Is that the tone that God takes with you? Because I don't think that's the tone of God. I think this is a, it's a question of compassion. Because obviously God is the one who sent him to the cave. And so this question is, gosh, hey, what are you doing here, Elijah? Hey, tell me. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Tell me about, like, what's really going on in your life. Let's talk. And Elisha's like, okay, you want to talk? You want to you know what's going on in my life? Okay, here it is, verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, right? That's you. That's you, God. Um, the people of Israel, if you didn't know, they've forsaken your covenant. They're throwing down all your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And guess what? God, guess what? I only am left. I'm the only one. And they seek to kill me and take my life. That's, that's, that's what's going on, God. Like that's, and God's like, okay, hey, Elijah, thanks for sharing. <laughs> it's good to know what's going on in your life. It's good to know. If you didn't think that I knew, I did know, but I thank you for sharing. And I'm glad to know what's really in your heart. And I think that there's something, though, that we see in this text that gives us a hint about what's really happening in Elijah's life. And it's in this word, jealous. Let's send this word jealous. You see, I think that there's something off in Elijah's relationship with his creator. 
Well, I, uh, many years ago, I read a book um, by a guy uh, named Sky Jathani, and he wrote a book called With, and it's not a perfect book, um, but he, in it, he, he basically outlines these, these different postures that we can take in our relationship with God, okay? So we're going to walk through those in a second, but, but have you ever heard of the phrase, the, the phrase uh, this was popular when I was in college, and maybe it's like not even existent anymore, but it's called DTR, Define the relationship. Has anybody else heard this? Okay. Like a few of you, right? DTR, defining the relationship, um, was like when you're in college um, and if you had feelings for a person of the opposite gender and you would go to them and go, hey, like, I just want you to know, like, I really, I really like you and I think that we should make this work. Right? Like, that's like you're setting the page. Like, I want to define this relationship between you and me. Like, what could it be? And then they can choose to say, great, I'm all in. Let's try that. Or they could be like, hey, man, Seth, I just want you to know, like, you're awesome. You're great. But I just don't feel that way about you. And they can, like, flip that back around, right? Like, I can define the relationship back. Like, like I'm thankful for you sharing that, but that's not how I feel. And so it's like, I think if God in this moment is like, hey, like, like Elijah, you and I, let's have a little defining the relationship moment, okay? Because there's something going on here between us that I'm not sure is fully accurate. And so in this book with, he outlines these four postures. The first one uh, is the posture of four. Now, this really just means, it's like for me, it's like when I look at my relationship with God, my, I exist to, to do good things for God. Like, it's this life on mission, the road element. Like, like, every day I wake up and I think about everything that I need to do, everything I need to do that's good for the sake of God's kingdom and for Him, okay? So, that's this four posture. But here's the second one. Is the, is the posture under. Now, under is really this. Under is this idea that like, God is uh, oppressive uh, and potentially mean or disciplinary, and so it's, there's this cause and effect relationship, and so sometimes I view my relationship with God as if I'm just going to obey whatever He says. Whatever He says, I'm going to do it because I'm fearful of, of what the consequence might be. Like, if, if like, the consequence is discipline, like, I don't want that in my life. And so there's that posture of under, and we bay out of fear. But then there's over. Over is where we seek to gain control over God. We think that our, by our power, in our own power, in our own control, we can actually put ourselves above God, and we can actually, through prayers and, and uh, right behaviors, we can actually manipulate God into, into doing what we want Him to do, as opposed to the other way around. And this last one is the idea of from. Now, from just means this. It's like, hey, like, here's the real, real deal. Like, I, I'm, like, I'm not super into God. I don't really care that much about Him. In fact, I'm not really interested in a relationship with Him. I just want the good things that He can give me. And so we have these four different postures. And here's what I want you to hear. And we're going to come back to another one here in a second. But here's what I want you to hear is that we can be passionate, convicted, and devoted followers of Jesus and something in our relationship with Jesus is still off. We can be passionate, convicted, and devoted, and yet something is still off in our relationship. And when that thing is off, guess what? It leads us to a place of loneliness and fear in the same way that happened for Elijah. He said, I'm all alone. Was he all alone? No. Obadiah was living at the time. There's a whole bunch of other prophets that were there. He's like, it's just me. No, it's not you. It's not just you, but because you're operating out of this improper posture with God, it might feel that way. It might feel off to you. So here's my question, though. Um, If we were to look at this, if we were to look at this list, 
Which one of these do you think is the posture of Elijah? Now, we don't actually know, but I would guess that he was in the posture of four because of that word jealous. God, look at everything that I'm doing. I'm so jealous. Like, I'm, I'm passionate about your people. Like, like, look at all that they're doing. I've been working so hard. I went up against 450 prophets. Look at everything that I've done for you. Like, I'm accomplishing all of this stuff for you. That seems like a posture of four. Now, here's my second question. Which one is yours? Which one of these postures is yours right now? And, and it probably changes a lot, but maybe right now. Are, are, you, are you working for God? Are you working under God because you're fearful of Him? Are you trying to manipulate Him? Or are you just trying to get something from Him? Like, what is that posture for you right now? Because here's my question, what if there's a different way? What if there's a different posture that's far more satisfying? And it's this last one, and it's the idea of with. And it's, it's really this, is at the end of every day, when God looks at Elijah, and when God looks at me, and when God looks at you, and when God looks at us, and he says, gosh, guys, there's a lot of great things that I would love to accomplish through you. But guess what? At the end of the day, what I want for you is to be fully satisfied in the fact that I love you and that you love me. That's it. It's not a for, it's not an under, it's not an over, it's not a from. It's like, I just want to exist in right relationship with you. And I want that to lead to other and bigger, better things, but this is the start of a healthy relationship. And it's as if God has to remind Elijah of this very thing, okay? And then here's what happens. Look in verse 11. God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Right? Like, how crazy is this scenario? He's like, hey, well, I want you to go stand at the edge of the mountain. And guess what? While you do, it's going to, and rocks are going to fall all around you. The wind's going to break it all up. It's going to be this crazy event. And then yet what it says is that, but the Lord was not in the wind. And this is after the wind, an earthquake. The whole thing shakes, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. By the way, this could be just describing a theophany, which is, just this, which is a moment of God in front of, of one person. I think more likely, this is an actual volcanic event something like that in its form that he puts him at the edge at the precipice and allows all of these things to happen, which is in form, kind of like a theophany. I want you to see who I am. It's like as if he looks at Elijah and he says, look at all these crazy, big, powerful things that I can do in the world just to remind you of my power. And yet, but what it says though is that he wasn't in those things. It says, as after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Let's highlight that. The sound of a low whisper. See, what it took for Elijah was to send, for God to redirect his plan in the midst of personal and national crisis, and he sends him to a cave. And, and here's what we learn. I want you to learn, these are simple, but here's what we learn about cave time in this, okay? The first one is this, is that a cave, the cave is a quiet space, 
The cave is a quiet space. And if you were to think back, because you remember, we're at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and at the beginning of the story, we were at Mount Carmel. And so it's as if these two mountains are in contrast. Up here, at this one, you had God show up in big, extravagant, powerful ways where he sends fire from heaven and he consumes the entire sacrifice. And it's amazing. And all of the people wonder and ooh and awe. But that's not what Elijah needed in this personal, authentic, intimate conversation. And so what God did is he redirected him to another mountain where there's this cave, and it's, this, it's this, all this big hoopla. God may show up in big ways, but it's in the soft silence, this low whisper, in the quietness of that space that it took for God to have an intimate conversation with his son, Elijah. The cave is a quiet space. And you think about that in real life, we go, gosh, like our lives are just filled with noise. They really are. I mean, just the more you think about it, the more noisy our life is. We need a quiet space. And here's the second thing that we learn about uh, cave time. Um, The cave is ideally a thin space. Now, the word for um, low whisper or soft whisper can also be translated thin, a thin whisper. Now, we've stolen Cave Table Road from Celtic monks. They all also coined this phrase, thin spaces. Now, what they would say is that heaven and earth never really are more than three feet apart, but thin spaces are where it seems that like God's like heaven and our earth overlap. There's these thin spaces where we feel like we experience God in new, in powerful ways. So when I was in college, a sophomore, um, I lived in Colorado for a while, and I, and I would always climb up this same uh, path and trail to this one rock and overlook a valley, and it was as if like, like every time I opened my Bible, like angels were singing, you know? It was like this thin space. It was incredible, and I loved it. The first moment I stepped foot at the Sea of Galilee, thin space, I was like, man, if I could just sit here and curl up and, and live the rest of my life in, in, in this devotional space, I would. But we can't because those, those are few and far between. And so more practically, we need ideally some type of a thin space. For me, my thin space, even though it's not nearly as good as the Sea of Galilee or that rock in the mountains, for me, my thin space is a chair next to my fire and by my window. And it's the place where I feel like I can hear God most clear when it's quiet and when it's the, the sun is still, you know, yet to come out. That's a thin space for me. And so when I come back to this, as we begin to wrap up here, as we think about this train, I go, I look at this and I go, this is something that Eden loves to, to, to pull around our house. And, and, you know, the practicality is, is though, what if, if we were to, to reverse this whole scenario and put this back here and hook it up this way, and if Eden were to try and pull this train in this fashion with this, in this order, guess what's going to happen? It's just going to wreck. It's just going to fall over because God's word is not, it's the same thing that's true with us, right? God's word needs to be at the center for us. And I want us to, to be really to be really noticeable, to be thoughtful about the fact that, that when we think about this story that we just read, right, like how everything was perfect, everything was perfect in that. And like, like Elijah was on cloud nine, and yet in a single little moment, how quickly it derailed the train. But look at how much work it took to get that train back on track. <laughs> 
God's like, hey, man, i got to take you to a cave spot. We've got to have a, a real, authentic conversation. And that's what we need. And it's somewhere in between those two mountains, between Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai, that God gets a hold of Elijah's heart and directs him to a cave where he can have that conversation. And this is where I'm going to end. Because after the end of this conversation, after all of this, just right after the sound of a lost soft whisper, this is what God says. Or this is what happens. Verse 13, it says, When Elijah heard, he wraps his face in a cloak, and he went out. Which, by the way, is what makes me think this is actually like a volcanic event. Because he's got to cover his face from all of the smoke, the debris, the ash, all of that stuff. And so he goes to the edge he stood at the, the entrance of the, cable, of the cave, and behold, again, God's word enters back into the story. There came a voice that said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's the exact same question, and it's as if God in this moment is like, Elijah, man, I get it. Life is hard. Life is challenging. It is stressful. It is beyond all that. It is not easy, but here's what I hope that in this silence and in this word, I want you to be reminded and to, be, and to know this is who I am. This is who I am and who you are in light of me. That's why that cave time is so important. Which then, by the way, what God then says at the end is, I don't want you just to stay in this cave for the rest of your time. What I want you to do is go back into the real world. Because cave times always propel us back into the road where God has us. But it starts in the cave. We need to be reminded over and over and over we need this in our life. We need rhythms. And I'm not saying you have to do it every day for a certain amount of time. I'm not saying that. I'm saying be in rhythm with this because here's the deal. When it comes to Sundays, we hear God's word and we go, man, that was good. But then when we leave and maybe everything is in right order, but guess what? And Monday, my heart can change. Tuesday, my heart can change. Wednesday, my heart can change. Thursday, my heart can change. Right? You see it? And so we need these patterns, these rhythms where we get into these authentic, important, deep conversations with our creator. So, hey, I'm going to invite the, the worship team uh, to come on up. Uh, and while, uh, while they're, they're coming up, uh, I'm going to put some, uh, some questions up here uh, on the screen for you. Here's the first one. So we just wrestle through these. Um, as we think about the train, where have feelings um, had control um, for you over your truth? That's just worded wrong. Where have feelings been had? Yep, that's bad. We'll, we'll fix that for second service. Where have feelings had control for you over your truth? Okay, here's the second one. How, uh, how would you define, think about DTR, how would you define your, with your relationship with Jesus right now? Like, would you think about what's from a four perspective? Uh, am I working for him? Am I working under him? Am I working over or from or that, that sweet spot of with? The third question is, is this, where are your thin spaces? Maybe you need one. Maybe you need to find a thin and quiet space in your rhythm. And last one uh, is, is this, um, who are you inviting into your walk with Jesus? Because at the end of this passage, God actually uh, says, I'm going to send you back into the real world, but I'm not going to send you alone. I'm going to send another person with you, and his name is Elisha. And so it's like in this very text, we see cave, table, doing life with Elijah, and back to the road. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you this morning, 
Lord, we, we just acknowledge, um, I acknowledge, and, and maybe us together, we acknowledge uh, that maybe there's just some personal stuff going on in our lives. We have these, these personal crisis moments, and maybe they're big crisis, and maybe they're really small and, and minute, but, but nonetheless, they are significant to you. And maybe we have fears and, and overwhelmingness and guilt and all of these things in our life that, that contribute to this personal crisis. But then we think in the midst of that too, like there's this national thing going on that, that we have questions about, about how the world is unfolding and how this story is that you are guiding that we go, God, I, I just don't understand what it is that you're doing. I don't, I don't get it. And yet, Lord, at the end of this, Lord, we have the option to trust you or to trust ourselves. Lord, I know that for me, that my, my own personal nature uh, is, is far from accurate. And if I were to trust me all the time, I would just be a total wreck. And so, Father, I pray this morning for me, I pray for each of us. And as we think especially about these, these cave time moments, as you redirected Elijah to a place of a cave to say, man, let's have an authentic conversation together, just you and me. Let's share, let's talk, and let me remind you of how good and great and awesome I am. By the way, the biggest of that is that I sent my son to die on the cross for you. Would you be reminded of that this morning? And so, Lord, may we trust you in all that you're doing. Amen.